Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. I want to invite you to find a Bible, your own Bible, one near you, uh, however you're accessing it, and to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, for our reading and sermon this morning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Page 808 in the Black Bibles, 808 or 960 in the large print. Let's hear God's Word together. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Since when have you cared about the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Amen. Well, you'll see the sermon title printed for you. So who do you think he is, the greatest man on earth? Well, he's there in our passage this morning. Did you spot him right away? Chapter 3, verse 1, John the Baptist. Friends, this morning, John the Baptist is the greatest man the world has ever seen. It's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? Probably not the answer you were expecting, I guess, some of us, amazing thing to say, but I I put it here like that, and I say it to you because that is exactly what the Lord Jesus himself calls John the Baptist. Just flick forward a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 11. Keep keep your finger in chapter 3, but flick forward to chapter 11, Matthew 11, and look at verse 11. 
This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. See, see what he's saying? Among those born of women, so that's me this morning, that's you, all of you, to, to everybody in the world, if you have a mom, John the Baptist is greater than you. Amazing. Now, if you look at the next part of verse 11, we all want to know what that, that means then, that if he's the greatest one in the world, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We all want to know what that means. And you're going to have to wait until we get to chapter 11 to know what that means. I think I'll get Will to explain that to you, or Sinclair maybe. Uh, they can sort that out. But here's the question for us this morning, why? Why is John the Baptist the greatest man on earth? What, what is it about him? What does Jesus see about him? I want to give you the answer this morning right up front, and then I'm going to try and prove the answer to you from our passage in four different ways. Here's the answer. What makes John so great is that he knows he's not great. What makes John so amazing is that he knows he's not amazing. What, what makes him stand head and shoulders above everybody else who's ever been born is that it has never entered his mind that he's head and shoulders above everybody else. Let me sharpen it just a little bit further. John is so great because he can see with crystal clear vision that the only one who is really great is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's John's closeness to Jesus, the, the specialness of the role that John has in preparing the way for Jesus in the world. It's the way that John does that. It's what he sees about who Jesus is that makes him so great. Oh, friends, we can learn so much from that this morning, so much. Have you ever encountered somebody like this, that after you get to know them, pretty quickly you discover that this person has been thoroughly, totally, deeply, completely captivated by Christ. They, they love Him. Have you ever met somebody like that, that the Lord Jesus is just everything to them? that their love for Christ is so warm, so real, their, their communion with Christ is so personal. And, and you find that just by being with this person, it, it magnetizes the Lord Jesus. It draws you to Him more and more. That they're somehow like a light shining on Him. That's John the Baptist. We, we love people like that, don't we? J.C. Ryle, our bishop, friend, my, my friend the bishop, the dead bishop of Liverpool. He's going to be your friend, I can assure you, whether you want him to be or not by the time we're finished Matthew's gospel. J.C. Ryle said, happy would it be for the church if all its ministers were more like John the Baptist. It's true. I want to show you why this morning, but let, let's spread that out a little bit more. Happy would it be for the church if all its people were like John the Baptist. For John's message to us this morning is this, the major problem with the church is the church. The major problem with the church is the church. 
I want to show you four things this morning that John can see about the Lord Jesus, which elevates Jesus in our eyes, even as for John himself, as he sees these four things about Jesus, they lay him himself in the dust. That the more you see these four things, the greater Christ becomes and the lower and lower and lower you become. Here's the four things. John can, number one, see who Jesus is. Number two, he can see what Jesus wants. Number three, he can see what Jesus does. Number four, he can see what Jesus holds. Who Jesus is, what Jesus wants, what Jesus does, what Jesus holds. Here's here's the first one. Everything in all the world depends on this. Number one, John can see who Jesus is. John can see who Jesus is. Everything Everything in all the world depends on this. John is so great because he can see what not everybody can see. John has perfect 2020, crystal clear vision of who the Lord Jesus is. You see, both in Matthew chapter 11 and our passage chapter 3, John's greatness is bound up in being a messenger, a herald who gets to tell people that God himself is coming. God himself is coming to earth. See it in verse 3 of our passage. This is he, this is John the Baptist who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. That's another reason for John's greatness, by the way. The only prophet who other prophets say is coming. This is him. Isaiah said he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what does he say? What does he cry? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. See, John can see that in just a few moments when the Lord Jesus walks onto the stage of world history, John can see this is God coming, that this is the Lord coming. John's greatness is bound up in saying there is someone so much greater than me coming. The Lord is coming. God is coming. And you need to get ready for his coming. I remember as a little boy growing up in Tanzania in East Africa, I remember the president of Tanzania once coming to visit the compound of houses where we lived. And it's the kind of thing that sticks in your mind because of the grandeur of the occasion. It was a spectacular occasion. And I remember a really odd thing about this visit, that, that as the president prepared to arrive, dusty African roads were swept with brushes and the, these, the, the, these dusty roads were swept with brushes to make the way clear. It wasn't just the houses that were tidied up and cleaned, but the roads were prepared. The, the potholes that we, we'd all had to live with for years all of a sudden miraculously filled in. Obstacles removed so that when the great day came and the great cavalcade of cars and motorbikes could sweep into the village, they would do so unimpeded. It's an amazing thing when the highest dignitary of the land comes to visit. But do you know what it means, John says, do you know what it means when God himself comes? That there is nothing like it. And John can see, John can see that the greatest need in the world is for God himself to come and rescue us. 
Just ask yourself this morning, who else can save us? What, what, what else can save you? Education? Medicine? Science? Our politicians? Oil? No, if those things were enough, the Lord Himself wouldn't have had to come, would He? Look at verse 11 of our, of our chapter. Can you see what John can see? I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, the Lord Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Friends, here's how you define greatness. This is what greatness is. When someone can look at the Lord Jesus, and on looking at the Lord Jesus, say to him, I am not even worthy to be your slave. That that's greatness. I am not even worthy to be your slave. Oh, that's how great you are. Friends, that is human greatness. When your sight of the Lord Jesus is so clear that you cry out that His very sandals are too holy for my hands to touch. Do you see it? That the dirtiest thing about Him the dirtiest thing about him, that, that's what a slave was for, a servant was for, to, to touch the things that the master doesn't want to touch. You, you sit down, sir. Let me take those off your feet. The dirtiest thing on him is too clean for me to handle, John says. I'm not worthy. I've been in the presence of some great men and women. I'm sure you have too. Think about it through your lifetime. And isn't it true that some of those great men and women who you've met, they know that they are great men and women. They know they're the greatest man or greatest woman in the room. And I've been in the presence of some very great men and women who, who, who shrink their greatness down in the presence of Jesus who take the greatness of all that the world has given them, and they, they, they shrink it down, and they say, it's, it's nothing. I'm not even worthy to be in the same room as him. I want to ask you this morning, are you like that? Are you like that? Can, can you see him? John's greatness is his humility. Number two, there's even more here. John can see not just who Jesus is. He can see what Jesus wants. He can see what Jesus wants. What does Jesus want when he comes? When the Lord rolls into town, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But, but where is Jesus coming to on that road? Where is he coming to live? What, what kind of road does he need to rescue me? What kind of road is he traveling on to rescue you? Where is he traveling to? Well, when the king comes and he brings his kingdom into the world, where is that kingdom? It's what John says in the opening verse, isn't it? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Where is it? Where does the king take up residence? What does he want from his subjects? Look at John's word in verse 2, repent. Repent. The repentance is what Jesus wants when he comes, isn't it? It's so clear. It's one, of, it's one of the key words in the passage. It's there in verse 
two, repent. You get it again in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You get it again in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. And the, the idea of it is there in verse 6. These people went out to John confessing their sins. What Jesus wants is repentance. And he, here's why. Because where he is traveling is not on a road to a palace, but he's traveling into your home and into my home. He's traveling into your heart and here today into this church family. The Lord God Himself in Jesus the King. He's coming, John says, He's coming to begin the process of living with His people once and for all. That's what Jesus is doing. That's the road He's traveling on. What, what will happen at the end of time as the new Jerusalem comes down? Now the dwelling of God is with man and he will live with them forever and he will be their God and they will be his people. And John is saying that is starting now. Here he's coming. He wants to come and eat with you today. He wants to live with you. He wants to be the unseen guest at every meal in your home, to be the person you speak to first in each waking moment. And so think about it this way. Look, if that president of Tanzania if somebody said to you, he's coming to live with you this afternoon at 3 p.m., if I had to break that news to you straight after church, the president of Tanzania will be at your house at 3 p.m. this afternoon, what would you do between now and then? I suspect there'd be at least some very quick exits, wouldn't there? And the vacuum would be out, and there'd be an argument at the home about whether it was you were doing too much or too little. Does he like cats or dogs? What are we going to do with it? Does he like children? But, but the point is, if you swept the road for his car, you'd want to sweep the room that he's going to stay in to be clean, wouldn't you? But what would you do if it was, if it was the Lord coming? The, the Lord himself coming to your home at 3 p.m. this afternoon? that the Lord Himself coming to Trinity Church 10.30 a.m. every single Sunday morning. Where's the king going to go? Where's he going to live? See, what's going to happen here in this gospel, Matthew's gospel, as we work through it, when the Lord Jesus comes and He, he meets people who have just a glimpse of who He is, even, even just a glimpse of His glory we're going to see is like pulling the curtains back on a darkened room. You can begin to do that at this time of year. Can't you just pull the curtains back on a darkened room and the light comes flooding in? What happens when we experience that? We shrink back, don't we? We put our eyes down. The light is too much. And you see what John is saying here? His, the, the Lord's mightiness is too much for me. His greatness eclipses all other greatness, and this king brings his kingly rule to bear in every single corner of our lives. And when he does that, there is just one thing that he wants, just one thing. He wants us to repent. As the light shines, he wants us to confess the darkness. You see it in verse 6. These people go out to John being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's what the king wants, to, to shun the darkness, to turn from it, to flee from it. 
You, our, our English word that's printed for us in our Bibles, the English word repent, it comes from the, the Latin word, and that re bit, the, the first two letters at the start of the word, the repent, it, 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 it has the idea of saying sorry over and over and over again, re-sorrying yourself. Verse 6, confessing your sins. It's not a wrong idea. It's why we have confession of sin every Sunday at the start of our service. Repentance like that should be a daily thing. It's a wonderful, necessary thing to do. But actually, biblical repentance is more than that, so much more than that. I think many of us have heard preachers say that that the word repentance is much more about turning around, doing an about turn and going in one direction and turning around and now going in the other direction. It's a lifestyle turnaround. So if you put your eyes on verse 2 and with me, you hear John saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's what it should sound like. Imagine somebody crying out, come back come back, turn around, come home. That's what the word means. Listen to this definition. I read this this week. Somebody said, repentance means that within, inside, one must change one's mind and heart about what is important in life, and then outwardly change your life accordingly. I love that. Repentance means that within I must change my mind and my heart about what is important in life and then outwardly change my life accordingly. It's beautiful, isn't it? Do you remember the prodigal son? Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Do you remember him? Starving to death, longing to eat with the pigs. And and Jesus tells the story so beautifully, doesn't he? He says that when the, the son is starving, but when he came to himself, when he came to himself, it's a a beautiful idea, that kind of separation within your heart where you get to stand back and look at yourself. That's an inner movement in repentance, isn't it? It's a gear that your heart goes through. That that, that brief moment where you look at yourself and you say, what what on earth was I thinking? How, How did I do that? What does the prodigal say next? Do you remember? I will go to my father and I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. See the two directions of repentance. Sin is against heaven and it is against you. First of all, sin is Godward. I've sinned against you, Lord, and I will say to my father, I have sinned against you. Sin is vertical first and horizontal second. It is against God, and then it is against his father. It was his father's house that he ruined, but his father's house was in God's world. He rejected God before he ever rejected his father. I have sinned against heaven and against you. That is repentance. And just like John the Baptist, what does the prodigal say next? I am not worthy. I'm not worthy even to be called your son. Treat me as a slave. Friends, repentance is so very simple. Three words, I have sinned. I have sinned. No qualifications, 
No excuses, no attachments, no carefully managed media statement that the prodigal son doesn't think he needs therapy. He needs rescue. Rescue. He needs a new relationship. Repentance is not saying to somebody, I'm sorry if. Anytime you add that little word if to your apology, to your repentance, it is not true repentance. I'm sorry if I hurt you. I'm sorry if you're upset by what I did. No, repentance is, I know what I did is wrong. End of story. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. But friends, here's what I want us to see this morning. Repentance is that I'm not worthy moment. It's an I'm not worthy moment that takes us to God, not away from God. Many people get this wrong. It's the natural impulse, isn't it? I'm not worthy, so I will stay away. I'm not worthy, therefore he must not want me. No, it's the opposite, isn't it? I'm not worthy, therefore I come to him. I repent. I want you to see number three. John can see what Jesus does. He can see who Jesus is. He can see what Jesus wants. He can see what Jesus does. Look, says John, come to me for water baptism for repentance, but you really need to come to Christ for baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. Friends, this is what Jesus does. He baptizes with the Spirit and fire. That's what Jesus does. He baptizes with the Spirit and fire. I think, I think I'm going to say more on all of this next week when we look at Jesus' own baptism, but he, here's the heart of it. What John does, here's the contrast between Jesus and John. What John does is to offer the sign of repentance, but what Jesus does is to give the reality of repentance. John is a great big sign pointing like any road sign out there on the road, pointing up the road to Inverness or whatever, that the road sign is not itself Inverness, as you discover as you sit and look at it for two hours. It's just telling you what way to go. John is a great big sign pointing to Jesus. It's why John is so great. But Here's what he's saying. Look, what I'm doing is putting water on your body. That, that's just pointing you to what Jesus will do, which is to put a new heart in your body. You, you, you see, you don't want more of me, says John. No, you want more of him. And, and just like the best that I can do is cover you in water as, as a picture of being clean on the inside, Jesus himself will actually cover you with his Spirit and make you clean on the inside. That that's what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It means God himself giving himself to you and making you his and making you clean because he comes to live with you. It's the difference between what you would do between now and three o'clock, cleaning the room and trying to make it ready and getting it all ready and what happens at three o'clock when the president actually arrives in your home and now because he's there and sitting with you, everything is perfect and right. You, you've got him, and, and he knows you by name, and he loves you, and he's made you his friend. He, he's in charge now. He's in charge of the home. 
that that's what Jesus does. I want to put it as clearly as I can this morning. Here's what Jesus does. He cleanses the dirty. He, he washes us. He cleanses us. Jesus washes you. He washes me. Just, just think about it for a moment. We all know that feeling, don't we? I was trying to think of examples, and I thought this would end up just turning people's stomachs, so I'll leave it, leave it vague and general. Do you know that feeling of ickiness, d- dirtiness? You've sat in something or touched something or you've played in something or you've rolled around in something, and, and there's a bad smell, and there's just mess everywhere. Oh, we, we love getting washed, don't we, getting rid of that? But just take that sensation of all that outer dirtiness and imagine it on the inside of us. That, that's worse, isn't it? W- what is dirtiness like on the inside? Feeling dirty on the inside is awful. Friends, the greatness of John the Baptist, the greatness of John the Baptist this morning is to look you and I in the eye, each of us in the eye, clearly, directly, forcefully say to us lovingly, friend, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. It's amazing. How do you measure greatness? I baptize, John says, I baptize, but he saves he saves. I was thinking about this. Who, who's the greatest person in the world? It's probably at the minute Taylor Swift, isn't it? At least the most famous woman in all the world. Her boyfriend, close second. How do, how do you measure human greatness? Beauty, power, prestige? No, the greatest person in the world is the person who never, ever stops telling you that your greatest need is to run to Jesus. That's how you measure greatness. Your greatest need is to come to Christ and be rescued. Listen to our bishop friend. Do we feel bad and wicked and guilty and deserving of God's anger? Is the remembrance of our past lives bitter to us? Does the recollection of our past conduct leave us feeling ashamed? then we are the very people who ought to run to Christ just as we are, making no useless delay. Christ will receive us graciously, pardon us freely, and give us eternal life. He receives sinners. I want to ask you this morning, I only have one question. Can you see Him? Can you see Him? Can you hear John the Baptist through my words, through Matthew's words. Can you hear John the Baptist crying out this morning? It's interesting, if you look at verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Some some translations actually say howling. The, The voice of one howling in the wilderness, trying to get people to stop and listen. Somebody has said that the only reason people speak loudly, they speak loudly for three reasons, when other people are distant, deaf, or angry. And the human race is all three. People speak loudly when others are distant, deaf, or angry, and the human race is all three. That's why John speaks. And so we need to finish with this. Number four. 
John can see what Jesus holds. John can see that Jesus is holding something. He's actually holding something in both hands. Not just who he is, not just what he wants, not just what he does. John can see that Jesus is armed, heavily armed. He's holding something. Do you see it in verse 12? His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The, 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 this farming tool, the winnowing fork, that you, you used it, either you, you rubbed it in your hands, put it down into the, into the grain, and you rubbed it to separate out the wheat and the chaff into two piles, or you, you, you put your fork into it and threw it up into the air, and the wind separated the chaff in the air, and the, the wheat falls to the ground and the chaff is gone. The, the winnowing fork is a separating tool. You, you, you've got one product, one fruit, one harvest. And what you're going to keep, you're going to gather it into your barn. And what you don't need, you're going to discard. It's going to go, go off to the side. Do you see what Jesus is holding? He, he's holding a separating device in his hand. He's got a tool of distinction in his hand, a, a demarcating tool, something that is going to split the world in two. John is crying out in the wilderness because the human race is deaf. The human race is distant or the human race is angry. And that is exactly what happens in our passage, isn't it? I wonder by the time we got to verse 12, I wonder if you realized that we had already met the wheat and the chaff in the passage. I wonder if you could trace the dividing line. Do you see it? There's the wheat in verse 6. Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region went out to John. They were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. That is what Jesus wants, the wheat. But look at the chaff in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Now, I, I don't know about you, but clergy are normally treated respectfully, aren't they? I can remember as a little boy, the minister, the church that we were in for a while, occasionally the minister would call black shirt, white dog collar, and there's just that little bit more tension in the air when the minister calls at the house, particularly if he calls unexpectedly. All of a sudden, the best china comes out. People are a little bit on edge. I, I, I can remember one such visit. It was all going very well until my brother and I told the minister that we, we enjoyed church on Sunday because we timed his prayers. <laughs> and it, let me tell you, it did not go down too well with the minister. It's not how you treat somebody like this in society, meant to be a position of honor and prestige. That's who these people are, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are both the separatist groups, the Pharisees in particular, the separatist group. The Sadducees were the sophisticated group. Friends, here's the thing this morning. These two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are the Bible people. These are the people... These are the people who are really serious about God's book and really serious about being God's people. These are the PhDs, the academics, the ministers. 
that the religious leadership of God's the, the religious leadership of God's people of the day. And what does John say to them when they come to him? You pack of snakes. You cold, calculating, slithering, deadly reptiles. Can you imagine it? It's not how you address your elders, is it? Your, your session, your presbytery. Oh, friends, those bodies, isn't it true? The, these bodies, session, presbytery, councils, synods, clergy committees, pride themselves on dignity and order and correctness. But look at the contrast between verse 5. Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region were going out to him, and they were baptized by him. But look at the contrast, verse 7. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to his baptism. They came to it, to it, not into it, not under it. It's a very deliberate difference, isn't it? One commentator says, the region is coming on its knees. The region is coming on its knees with confession on their lips, but the religious are coming to watch, to watch. Somebody says they are here simply in surveillance mode. They're standing like this, aren't they? Arms folded, sitting watching, back row onlookers, with apologies to back row people. You see, you see who John is talking about here when he talks about wheat and chaff? Can you feel the stunning surprise hanging in the Judean air? Who would have thought that when God comes to his people, it is his people who are most in danger? His people who are most in danger. The major problem of the church is the church. If you had to look at verses 8 and 10 and put the problem in one word, what would it be? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Can you see what the problem is in one word? Presumption. Presumption, isn't it? Presumption. Presumption of right relationship with God because of religious pedigree. We, we were born Christian, John. Baptized, born into the church. Look what John says. No, no, God himself is coming in the person of the Lord Jesus, and he's coming to harvest the earth. He's, he's going to comb the earth. He's going to rake his vineyard. He has a fork in one hand to separate, and he has an ax in the other hand to cut down. For here, John says, remember what it is he wants. He wants repentance. He wants the fruit of repentance, not the form of religion. He wants the reality of a changed heart and love for God that flows from a changed heart. Those words, friends, that we said with the children this morning, 
What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, continual obedience that we love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. What happens on the Judean bank is that half the people, one portion of the people say, Lord, have mercy. We have not loved you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Bible teachers stand there and say, yep, done it, done it, nailed it got it all. What's next? Oh, it is such a fright, such a shock. What God wants is a changed heart, not the outward show that says, I'm an elder. I'm a member. 18th of February, 2024, I became a member. Don't you remember? I've been baptized with water. My father was a member all his life. What does John say? Good for you. Good for you. Now, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? If you look at verse 9, the, the, the scholars tell us that there's a play on words here in verse 9, that, that where John says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The, the Hebrew and Aramaic word for stone sounds almost identical to the word for children. You think you're Abraham's children? Here's what it would sound like today. God can get better children for Abraham from Chuckies on the ground than you. Chuckies are better children than you. No, you see, you see the point of what, what John is saying? It's God who makes children of Abraham, not merely biology. You need a new heart if you want to belong to him and be his, not merely a birth certificate. It's baptism with the Spirit that makes you His, not merely circumcision or baptism with water that makes you His. Which of those have you got, says John? I want to finish with this. Brothers and sisters, do you know what these serpents by the river show us, these sea snakes? Do you know what they show us? So, so shocking. They show us that there are some people in the church who want to analyze revival more than weep for it. Isn't that true? Well, what's happening on the Judean banks is revival. People are rending their hearts, coming to God on their knees. There are some people in the church who want to analyze it more than weep for it. That There are some people who are better at studying revival than praying for it. I'm quite sure that by the end of the day, this group in verse 7, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, I am quite sure that by the end of the day, they had their YouTube watch blog posted by the evening with clips from the day analyzing what had happened and their voiceover about everything that John was getting wrong, and they were up early the next morning to check their stats. There, there are some in the church who are always more comfortable on a committee than on their knees whose love for God has grown cold, that it's grown old long ago, but whose love for church business burns red hot. I want to finish with this. Here's the best thing, the best thing I read all week. J.C. Ryle. We need to be sent directly to Christ. We need to be sent directly to Christ, for we are all ready to stop short of Him 
Instead, we want to rest in our union with our church, or our regular use of the sacraments, or our diligent attendance to a particular ministry. No, we need to be told the absolute necessity of union with Christ Himself by faith. He is the appointed fountain of mercy, grace, life, and peace. We must each have personal dealings with Him. What does He know about your soul this morning? And what do we know of Him and His? What have we got from Him? These are the questions on which our salvation hinges. Amen.